Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, this is God's Word. Now, just let's, uh, before we, we jump into it, let's just say a, a word about uh, this uh, translation in verse 2. You see that uh, verse 2 says, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. We'll read that. Uh, th- that's been a, a very difficult word to translate. The ESV Uh, I think says um, vanity, vanity, that's maybe a better translation. Smoke or vapor, maybe even a better translation. But uh, just bear in mind that there's a little question mark over how we should understand that word. Verse 1, God's word. The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north, round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Well, let's uh, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. As we we are a in the custom of doing, as we start a new series, we sometimes recommend a book or something that might be uh, helpful if you want to do a little bit of extra reading. There is a, an absolutely excellent book by David Gibson. David Gibson is a minister in uh, Aberdeen, um, and uh, it is called Destiny. It's on Ecclesiastes. I think it's published also, that's published, I think, by IVP. It's published by Crossway, and I think the title is slightly different there. It's called Living Life Backwards. David's written a few things on Ecclesiastes, and uh, we we just can't recommend them highly enough. We are really leaning very, very heavily on David uh, and his particular approach to some parts of Ecclesiastes as we're going through this series, and we're very, very grateful uh, to him. Some of you heard him at at the castle uh, a number of years ago, 
and those talks are available online. We'll maybe uh, put up a wee link to those at some point. Uh, again, really, really worth uh, listening to. I wonder if you ever asked any of these sorts of questions. Uh, how come it is so difficult to get on top of things? How come it's so difficult to get on top of life? How come everything seems to break? How come happiness seems so hard to find and so fleeting? How come time seems to pass so quickly and seems to speed up as we get older? How come bad people often seem to have an easier life than good people? Have you ever asked, what is life all about? Well, if you've ever asked any of those questions or thought like that, Ecclesiastes is definitely a book for you. It's a book for us all. It is a book that is given to us to help us live in the world that is. Not the world that we pretend to have or maybe that we want to have, but the world that we actually have. In other words, it's the book for the, for the world that exists after the Instagram picture has been taken. You know how that works? You know, you clean everything up and, and you, you, you smile even whenever you're crying. You take the picture, you post it, and then you go back to the world that is. That's the world that you pretend to have, but there's a world that is. And this is the book, therefore, for the life that we cannot polish and present as a triumph the life that has both joys and sorrows. It's the book for the life that is uh, the, in, for living in the world that has been made by God and that God declares to be good as he created it, but also to be broken. And I think we, we, we know something of that tension, don't we? Good and broken. And so this is a, a book that's really here to help us navigate the life that we all live. Now, this book of Ecclesiastes is sometimes skipped over, just as we've been saying, because it is not the most straightforward part of the Bible. There have been various ways <clears throat> in which it has been understood down through the years. Some people have suggested that it doesn't belong in the Bible at all, and uh, it certainly does. And actually, the fact that it is hard to understand it, it is just a reflection of the fact that it is describing a life that is hard to understand. Haven't we, always, haven't we all wondered that at times? What is going on with this world? And maybe, therefore, it is no surprise that a book that describes this challenging life is a little bit challenging too. Now, it's an old book. It is uh, probably written by King Solomon. That means it's around 3,000 years old. Solomon's name does not appear. The author describes himself as the preacher uh, in verse 12, I, the preacher, um, and and that, that word does have its, its roots in, in the sort of the assembly of God's people. The very word Ecclesiastes is a reference to the Greek word for, for the assembly, the gathering of God's people. And, and so it, it does sort of fit with that idea of someone who is teaching God's people as to what life is about. And while Solomon's name does not appear, it really does seem that he uh, fits the bill as far as some of the descriptions of the author are concerned. So, for example, verse 12 of chapter 1, we see that he is the king over Israel. 
um, <clears throat> in Jerusalem. We uh, see in chapter 2 uh, that he is, chapter 2, verse 9, a great, uh, uh, greater than anyone before him in Jerusalem. In chapter 2, verses 4, 5, and 6, we see that he builds great buildings and projects and gardens, that he had many slaves. Uh, we find that he has a harem. Uh, uh, and it really does look as if Solomon fits the bill. And, and if that's the case... We know from, uh, from other parts of the Bible that uh, Solomon takes over from his father David as king, and he really has everything going for him. He sort of inherits the kingdom at a real high point, and it's a time of remarkable blessing and peace and prosperity. Uh, and eventually Solomon, for all his wisdom, wanders from the faith for a time, to a degree at least, and, and this book would indicate that perhaps he comes back to trusting the Lord and is keen, therefore, to share with others what he has learned, as if to say, I've made some mistakes, but I have some stuff figured out too, and why don't you learn from me that you will not go uh, in the same direction that I went? Always helpful uh, to learn from others in that way. This book is a part of what we call the wisdom literature of the Bible. Five books make that up, uh, Psalms and Proverbs and Job, Song of Solomon, and uh, Ecclesiastes. And if you want a shorthand way of thinking about those wisdom books, it is that they describe how the world works and how we should live in it under God. And Ecclesiastes is especially important in that because it tends to shatter some of our hunches about how we should live our lives. Shatters our hunches. David Gibson describes it as coming up behind us and punching us in the, in the back of the head, like somebody who, who sort of mugs us. It comes along and it sort of mugs us a little bit. Well, what's the big idea? Well, it's really in his opening statement, this verse that's so hard to translate. Verse 2, vanity of vanities, say the, says the preacher, I'm reading from the ESV now, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, this as I said, is a word that has been very difficult to translate, and it has perhaps sent some of us down the wrong path whenever we think about Ecclesiastes. The NIV's translation of meaningless is maybe not as helpful as it could be. It's a word that literally means vapor or, or, or breeze. Um, so so if, you, if you lived in a student flat with no heating in February, and you wake up, and you put your head out from under the duvet, you take your hat off, you know, and, and, uh, and you breathe out, you, you see your breath. It's a vapor. Those of you who are older maybe grew up in the days whenever the thought of heating a bedroom was just, nobody did that. And, and you know all about this. And what you breathe out is a vapor. And Ecclesiastes is saying, a vapor, a vapor, everything is just a vapor. Now, now what, is it, what is he getting at whenever he's saying that? Well, well there's a couple of things, I think. Uh, first of all, it doesn't last very long. You know how it is. You, you breathe out, you see your breath for a moment, but that breath, at least, the vapor, is, is gone. It's the same thing that James highlights in chapter 4, verse 14. He, he's talking to some businessmen who are confidently planning their next business trip, their trading mission. And he reminds them that such confidence in what they will be able to do 
should be tempered by the fact that their lives are really very fragile. This is what he says to them. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. A mist. I'm sure you've seen uh, scenes like this, this uh, next picture. Um, just a, a, a sort of a, a lake. You know, you're, you're, you maybe are driving somewhere and you come, you're early in the morning, an autumn day, and you come round a corner and there's just that lovely, beautiful mist just lying in a field or sitting across a body of water and the sun's about to come up and you think, I, I really must get a photograph of that. It's really quite stunning. And, and by the time you can stop the car and get your, your phone out or whatever, it, it's gone. It's all changed because it just, it just passes so quickly. And James is saying, and, and Ecclesiastes is saying, your, your life is like that. It's like a mist. It's like a vapor. It just passes so quickly. I, I remember the summer of 1976. Who remembers the summer of 1976? A few of us, yeah. Do you remember? I was, I was seven. It was a long, hot summer. The holidays went on for ages. The days never seemed to end. And now the days fly by. Life is a vapor. It doesn't last long. But the other thing about a vapor is it's hard to grasp. You can't get hold of it. You try to, to grab a mist. And, and you know it's there. It's, it's, it's real enough. But you just can't get hold of it. And life's like that. You, you try to control it. And it just sort of eludes you. You, you, you can't get on top of it. And it, it's, it's hard to grasp too in the sense that it's hard to understand. We, we use grasp in that sort of double way. And, and we find ourselves often asking, well, why did that happen? And why did it happen to them? And why did it happen then? Life is, is hard to grasp. It's like a vapor. So here's Solomon's big message you see about, about life. It's It's fleeting. And it's elusive. It passes quickly, and it's hard to grasp. Now, although there are bits of this book that are quite bleak, and you might feel that this evening, there are bits of this book that are quite bleak. It, it's not a book that's actually down on life. It, it really is here to show us how to get the best out of life. It's very life-affirming. But in order to do that, it has to sort of shatter some of the wrong orientations that we come to life with. Now, in the, life, in the light of the fact that life is a vapor, the natural question is, well, what's the sense of our lives? You know, we're only here for a while, just a fleeting uh, vapor. What's the point of it? Well, the preacher asks it this way, verse 3, you see, what does man gain <clears throat> by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The idea of gain is the idea of profit. Uh, what's left over at the end? What is the surplus? So, so I, I spend all these years working and toiling, and, and what do we have to show for it in the end? And the end is certain because we all die. That's one of the big things that, that, that Ecclesiastes is wanting to sort of point us to and, and hold up before us. We die. Everybody does. So how does that affect our lives? Look at verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth 
remains forever. So you see what it's saying. We all too quickly pass away, but the earth will just carry on. I don't know if you've ever been at some of those great historical sites, like, like somewhere like Pompeii, or, or, or even closer to home, you go to York, uh, the Viking experience under the streets of York, and, and there are either perhaps pictures of the remains of some of the people that, that they, they came across as they were doing their excavations, or, or indeed the remains of people themselves, if you're somewhere like uh, Pompeii. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Have you ever thought, I certainly have, have you ever thought, I wonder what these people were like? Uh, what were their lives like? Here I am, I'm looking at their remains. Uh, they were born. They, they raised families. They, they went to work. And then one day they died. And we don't know their names. A, a generation went and a new generation came, and the earth remained. Oh, and and you, you, you visit a new place, you, you go to somewhere, and, and there might be a, someone famous associated with that place from long, long ago. But the reality is you're walking on the bones of tens of thousands of people, and no one remembers them. And no one knows who they were. And when they died... Things just carry it on. What was the sense of it? What was it all, all for? And Ecclesiastes is sort of saying to us, look, stop and think about that, for you too will go, and the earth will, will carry on. In the, in the light of your all too brief life, how can you make sense of it? It's enough to make you weary. And indeed, that's what we we see whenever we, we look around, we see a sort of a, a weary world, a world that, 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 that just sort of carries on, that, that is full of repetition. And, and the, the writer turns to, to nature to make that point, and he, he picks up three wonderful images, really, uh, three lessons that we can sort of learn from, from nature. You see, he, he looks at the sun. Here, here they are. They're the, the sun, the wind, and, uh, and the water. Sun rises and sets, and then it hurries round to do it all again. That's the picture he paints. It's, it's quite a humorous picture, really. The, world, uh, the word hastens, you see there in, in uh, uh, verse 5, the word hastens has the idea of panting, being slightly out of breath. So you're, you're to imagine the sun sort of serenely settling down behind the, 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 the horizon and then sort of quickly sprinting around to get to the east again, slightly out of breath, to do it all over again. It's like how you were whenever you were on the school play. And you had to go off stage left, and then you had to run round and trip over all the backstage people, and you get round to the other side to come in on the other side and to, to say your lines and not be out of breath. And sons like that, the writer says, hastening back to its position to do it all over again and again and again. And the wind, well, the wind is the same. It, it, it blows uh, to the south, and then it goes back to the north to blow to the south again. And the streams, well, the streams are slightly different. Uh, here they are flowing down into the sea, and, and the sea is never full. So it, it's not particularly describing what the geography student would call the water cycle. You know, I, we've all learned that, how the stuff evaporates and goes back to the clouds, and down it comes again. It's not particularly pointing that out. It's just saying, 
the, the streams never stop. And the sea is never full. There's a weariness about it all. A sort of relentless repetition. Well, that's nature. What about us? Uh, well, in the midst of it, midst of all of this, there's no satisfaction for us, is there? Just as the sea is never satisfied, it never fills up, neither are we. We never see enough to say, I need to see no more. We never hear enough to say, that will do. And so you see that... Uh, it says, the eye is not satisfied, verse 8, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. And just like the sun continually rises and sets, and the wind blows, and the streams flow, there's this repetitiveness to it all. It's always the same. And the preacher then says, one of his most famous sayings, there is nothing new under the sun. All of you who have been or are students of history will know that. The same patterns repeat themselves in our world again and again. Verse 10, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. I was not saying that we can't invent new stuff. But it is saying that there's a remarkable repetitiveness to history. The same things come and go. Those who refuse to learn the lessons of the past are doomed to repeat them. All of those sorts of things. And the implication, of course, in all of this is, reader, hearer, you will come and go too. Well, if you're not a little bit depressed already, let me keep going. Because not only that, as we come and go, so here's the, the, the guy has just jumped you from behind. Now he's about to steal your phone. Verse 11, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things yet to come among those who come after. So it's not only that we come and go, we'll be forgotten. A couple of weeks ago, I went for a, a walk with uh, Katie and Sam in Mourne Park, just outside Kilkeel. I don't know if you know where it is. It, it's uh, a couple of miles outside Kilkeel. The Woodland Trust have just bought it over. It's a, a, an area of, of really ancient woodland. It's a marvelous spot. And uh, they've developed some walks through it, and it's very much worth a visit. Now, that was a place that I spent a lot of time in whenever I was a, a young person. Our school had a cottage in Mourne Park. Bet your school didn't have a cottage in Mourne Park. And uh, it had some bunk beds in it, and we used to go for field trips to it. It had no electric or, or water or anything like that, but um, we took water out of the Whitewater River, and we boiled it, and, and uh, there were, we stayed in it. My dad was a teacher for a time. He had a key to it. It was marvelous. And uh, I, I canoed in, in the Whitewater River. I, I, I camped as a scout in the garden of this cottage, and it was beautiful. It was whitewashed, and, and uh, it was just the most fantastic place. And a couple of weeks ago, I visited it again. It's slightly off the main path. And here it is. It's not as I remember it. It's just dilapidated and torn down. I slept in there about 30 years ago. 
And I can imagine parents with small children stumbling across it and the children saying, Mommy, does anybody live here? And Mommy's saying, Oh, no, darling. Nobody's lived here for hundreds of years. (laughs) But I lived there just 30 years ago. And most of the people who pass through the park will never know it's there or remember that anything happened there. And the preacher says, there's no remembrance of former things. And here's the thing. If we build a house, one day it will be torn down and be forgotten. And so will we. And the preacher says, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Well, that's cheery, isn't it? So why is this in the Bible? Well, do you know what it's doing? It's it's just the, the Bible is just grabbing us by the ears and forcing us to look at something from which we would otherwise turn our heads. It's saying to us, look at life. Look at how temporary it is. Look at how swiftly it passes. You will die, and you will be forgotten. Oh, some descendant might look us up in 200 years in a family history project, and, and, and they'll say, there was, there was a minister in our family, Mom. Did you know anything about that? And he says, yeah, I think I remember your, your great-grandfather talking about that. He was a really grumpy guy. But they won't know anything about us, really. Why why does the Bible force us to look at this? Do you know why? Because we live as if this is not true. We live as if this is not true. And our first task in living well, in living the way God wants us to live, in living the blessed life that God wants us to have, the first task in this is to face up to the temporary nature of our lives and the fact that we are but creatures, and this is what being a creature in God's world means. You see, whenever, to step back in a sense and set set the context, whenever sin enters the world in Genesis 3, we, we, we fall, our world is fallen. And all sorts of things happen at that point. We, we're separated from God. But, but, but one of the other things that happen is that our whole way of thinking changes. And all of our priorities change. And they're all mixed up. And we begin to think in ways that are not true. And we begin to think, we begin to value things that are ultimately not the most valuable things in the world. And we're not content to be creatures. We want to do the things that God does. So, so we're creatures and we want to say, we, we want to do the creator things. And, and we want to throw off the restrictions that being a creature brings to us. So one of God's jobs is to control things. It's what he does. He, it's, it's, it's there in his very nature. He is, he is sovereign. But we want to take that from him and say, I want to be in control. And so we try to control everything around us. We strive for it. Don't you find yourself thinking, maybe you you thought this as you come into the new year, 
if I can just get this sorted, this one thing, if I can get this sorted, then I'll be on top of things. Or, how about this? Next week, things will be different. Ever said that? Get through this weekend, things will be different. I I feel like wearing a t-shirt with that around my house. Say it so often. Do you know what that is? That is the voice of one who is striving for control, but just cannot manage it. Because we cannot control our lives. We want to ignore the fact that our lives are temporary, and we don't want to face up to the fact that we will die. And so we crave to make a mark and leave a legacy and be significant. This is what David Gibson says about when he talks about the world rolling on. It's a wonderful quote. I'm going to read a slightly longer quote, and then there's the, the little bit that's on the screen. We long for change in a world of permanent repetition. And we dream of how to interrupt it. We long for lives of permanence in a world of constant change. And we strive to achieve it. We spend our lives aligning our better selves with a different future that we envisage as more rewarding. And in it all, we are simply trying to make permanent what is not meant to be permanent, us, And by constant change, we are trying to control what is not meant to be controlled, the world. The seasons and natural cycles of the world are content to come and go, but we sweat and toil to make believe that it will not be so for us. Now, maybe you think this is massively frustrating because I was really hoping tonight that that I would find out how to live my life well. And I think if we stay with this, we will. I want to know, perhaps you say, how to get on top of life rather than to have it get on top of me. But this is a crucial first step in living well because it is saying that we have a place within this world. But it is not to be in control and to be the boss of all things and certainly not to be the boss of me. We are creatures And in fact, God has done us a marvelous kindness in ensuring that this world does not ultimately satisfy us. In Romans 8 verse 20, it talks about this world and the fact that it's fallen. And it says this, for the creation was subject to futility. It's the same sort of word. The creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So God has built futility into our fallen world. He's made sure that this world will not ultimately satisfy us. Why? Because we were made for him. And recognizing that is the key to knowing him, but also the key to enjoying this world. This world is not meant to to give us meaning and security and peace. It's God who does that. And what a disaster it would be if we could genuinely find meaning and security and peace outside of him. Because then we would miss him. And that would be dreadful. I've had the the title of a Bond film in my head. I can't remember which one it is. I I know the title, but I can't think of what was in the film. And maybe you know what it is. The world is not enough. And that's what we're going to see in this book. And it's so important to hear because this world is constantly whispering to us 
I am enough. I have all that you need. Everything you need is down here. In, in what you can see and taste and touch and just a little bit more control if you can just crank out a little bit more control then you'll nail it a little bit more change and you'll escape it but no this world is not for controlling or escaping it is for experiencing it is for enjoying as we come to know the one who made it and made us and put us in it so what's this opening chapter doing? It's, it's getting our attention, certainly. But it's also saying there are some really, really key things to living life well. And key amongst it all is to accept what it means to be a creature. God is in control. You are not. He is timeless. You are not. You are passing through. He is forever. Now, the preacher's going to build a sort of a case as we go through this book, but, but let me give you a little bit of a hint of where this is going. The eternal God who made us sent his son into this world so that we, time-bound creatures as we are, might know him forever. If you're one of those people who who can't bear but flick to the end of the story, that's part of what you're going to see. It's amazing. God sent his son into this world so that we would be with him forever. There is a way to be brought to the eternal God. So keep coming on Sunday nights. Keep reading Ecclesiastes because we will be led to the one who has always been, who lives forever and will welcome us to himself.